A quick listener warning. This episode contains subject matter dealing with suicide. If you or anyone you know is in need of help, please visit the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org for help. Whatever you're going through, you're not alone. Thank you, and enjoy the story. It's another day in your life. I know this because I'm with you for every detailed nuance you choose to acknowledge or ignore. I'm not really anyone that's special or important. I'm a bit boring myself, and that being said, we'll focus on you for the duration of this podcast. If you ever wondered what happens after you die, why you can't let go of your first love, why you're always choosing people who hurt you or maybe fearful you'll miss the best part of your life among the details of routine, well, that's where I come in. See, I'm not here to tell you how to live your life because you're already living it. I'm here to narrate the details of what you're doing so when you wake up or when you fall asleep, you'll know the day you lived, well, it matters. Welcome to Narratives. The water feels cooler than you remember as it splashes across your face. The red tone colors that are the inside of your eyelids shift to a brilliant burst of deep blues and white, then green as you rub your eyes with your balled up fists. You take a breath snorting water by accident, then spit out the residual traces into the sink. That dull light green avocado color that invaded the 70s decor of low-income housing decades ago comes into focus as you open your eyes. You look into the fragmented mirror. The hardware that holds the uneven surface in place is rusted over. Large chunks of green formica sink are gone, claimed by some unknown violence before you were born. The way the gun looks, sitting on top of the toilet's water reservoir, gleaming in the light of the single exposed bulb above you, seems to have taken on a life of its own. You're not afraid of guns. The one placed precariously on the back of the toilet has kept you company over the last two years. David left it as a parting gift when he moved out after the breakup. The relationship ended without a dramatic climax or screaming fight. He merely said he was tired of living the way the two of you had been for the last five years, and like everything else in your life, left you alone. The last expression on his face comes to mind as you remember how he gave you a simple shrug outside of the apartment door before he left. Black garbage bag full of clothes and hen. You wish you could say the last five years were a waste of your life with him, but in reality that wasn't true. He had been there for you when your father died. And rather than argue about the bed, fixtures, books, and television, only took his clothes and left everything else. You'd go shooting with him on the weekends when you could afford to go to the range together. A series of memories begin to rush into your mind when you shake your head and dislodge them before they can manifest entirely. You grip the gun with your right hand and place the barrel against your temple. The steel digs into your scalp, past the artificial lilac aroma of your shampoo, and the end of the barrel feels hauntingly familiar. Your heart rate doesn't increase. There is no throbbing pulse in your ears, no sweat on your palms. Those days are over. However, tonight feels differently. Instead, you're calm, and you breathe easy, and stare into the mirror, seeing the common sight on a random Tuesday evening. You didn't bother with a note or saying goodbye to any of your friends. No loving returns to the last place you wanted to visit before you died. No heartfelt romantic tragedy bullshit for you. No. This isn't about attention because no one knows you've been musing on killing yourself for the last five years. 
Everyone at the CTA Administration Hub believes you're stable, happy even. You spend the day behind the counter, taking payments and filing claims. You take your break, you clean, and you go home. And then you stay up and practice blowing your brains out with your ex-boyfriend's gun. You wince at how pathetic that sounds. Your life. You take the gun off safety. The first time you've ever done that in this bizarre routine. The click is like an old friend's greeting in the tiny confines of your East Rogers Park apartment. You hold the gun up to your head and listen to Howard blasting his music upstairs again. The bass is relentless. The bathroom light flickers in time with the kick of the song and oddly enough, you realize you'll miss that part of life. Music. That cold, hollow ache rattles your heart again, and to your surprise, you see a tear trace down your cheek. No hesitations. You remember making the promise to yourself, and as you break it, an unexpected image flashes in your mind. The man you recall from earlier that day looks like what your father might have looked like had he still been alive. He's standing next to you at Woodman's Groceries in the checkout aisle. His smile, tucked behind a bushy gray and white mustache, is broad and warm. In his hand, he holds a dark brown leather wallet. His other hand, the thumb and index finger, pinch his debit card as he pays for your groceries. Your card had been declined twice. The line to your left, full of exhausted workers just like you, didn't grow angry or frustrated as you made a third attempt to swipe your card. In the last few years, as the pandemic took over, as the economy fell apart, as the politics of this country began to claim sides on every social issue, as the modern world ebbed closer into chaos, everyone around you, in the cities, in the pace buses, the train stations, the broken and fragmented streets outside, they all understood the struggle of existing in this country. And instead of anger, they simply sighed with a distracted sympathy coupled with discouraged destitution in their futures. The cashier Barbara stared at her phone as the little card reader angrily beeped at your lack of funds. She didn't bother with the niceties of letting you know why your card was declined. She knew it was a common problem for a lot of shoppers these days, and eventually people either took the items without paying or simply walked away empty-handed. Either way, Barbara could give a shit about the end result. You shook your head, your shoulders overwhelmed with disappointment and defeat, when the older man shuffled up behind you. You were staring down at the scuffed tile floor trying not to have a breakdown when you saw the leather tassels of his penny loafers come into view. It was odd that they were covered in oil and scuffed to hell, but when you looked up, he had already slid his card into the machine without the slightest hesitation. The little machine, delighted to have a function, beeped with a happy chime. You looked up at him, and for a moment, you saw your father staring back at you in the face of a kind stranger. The older man didn't say anything as he slid his card back into his wallet and disappeared into the crowd of disenfranchised workers. You pull the gun away from your head and turn to see the groceries left on the battered dinner table. Next to the four-pack of toilet paper, a golden-wrapped chocolate bar waits in the night. The same gold-packaged chocolate bar your father used to buy when you were a kid now sits on your table refracting the light of the street lamp outside your third-story window. It glimmers in the darkness, a single golden star in the void of your one-bedroom apartment. A sob ripples through your chest, an image of his burial. Green, well-manicured grass, blue sky, a righteous blue sky. A beautiful October day, breezes, an image of the house after his wake. Your mother sitting aimless at the table, the clock ticking for no fucking reason. It was just her and you after dad died. The two women of the house left to sort out the mess of their fractured and hateful relationships. You left six months after your dad's wake and that was that. 
David promised to move in with you and he did. The two of you managed to afford a meager living off service jobs and the occasional gig he landed every few months. The crime got worse. The shootings got worse. Then your upstairs neighbor was stabbed in his own apartment and died under the street lamp that shines through your window at this very moment. David swore he'd stick by you through it all, and he did. David promised to make the empty apartment you now stand in a home, and he did, until he had to leave. And then, he did. You confessed to the walls, the ugly, damaged walls that you hate this place, and you begin to cry. You whisper you don't want to live like this anymore. You sob and break and scream. The gun slides out of your hand as you sprawl out on the wooden floor. The wooden slats creak beneath you as the floor exhales a musty breath into your open mouth. You shut your eyes and see the older man from today all over again. The same warm smile and kind eyes look at you through the depths of your numb evening. You open your eyes and see the slanted rumbus of light from the window that faces the lake. The light appears to ripple as passing cars outside send shadows darting through the shape. You stand up feeling humiliated in the presence of your apartment walls. The gun, pushed under the table, lays dormant with the safety still off. It doesn't matter. You wipe your eyes and look down at the little golden wrapper of the chocolate bar on the table. The bathroom mirror, chipped and broken, illuminated by its single bulb vanity, still pulsing with Howard's stereo, appear to be anticipating your next move. The thought arrives without permission as you sit next to the open window and listen to the sound of traffic outside. The distant chirp of crickets stand alone in the face of so much modern convenience. Four hours of silent reflection has left you aching with the lake breeze seeping in through the night air. The truth, the unspoken and heartbroken truth, is that you miss your mother more than ever. Growing up, the two of you never really understood each other. Your father was a compassionate and stable piece of the family that bridged the gap between your mother's temper and your stubborn ways. In some ways, it felt like she blamed you for everything that had gone wrong in her life. In some ways, you almost believed her. Then, on a random Tuesday five years ago, your father was shot and killed during a robbery. Six months of silence was followed by five years of isolation as you became an island among the living. Today was when you realized the sheer hopelessness of it all. It wasn't a eureka moment, but a painless conclusion. Life doesn't matter. You hate to admit it, but you are a lost child in the world. All you want is your mother to bring you in from the pain. All you want is to apologize for all the pointless fights. You just want to feel safe again in your mother's arms. You check your phone to see it's 2.02 in the morning. You'd call her right now if it weren't so late. The worst part is you know, in the light of day, once you've showered and grabbed a nap, the bitterness will have returned. But in this moment, this empty, humid, forlorn moment of time, you'd call her and tell her to come get you and save you from yourself but she's asleep somewhere in this massive city and she'll wake in the morning and do whatever it is she does. You would cry if you could, but your body is too exhausted to try. Instead, you feel a sob shake your hand as you look down at the black screen. All you want is your mom. The breeze moves in as the vibration stifles your thought. The black screen lights up, and in three white letters, the word MOM appears as it rings. Most suicides aren't some lonely teenager with a broken heart. Most suicides are 85-year-olds, 
or older. It makes sense if you think about it. Living that long, seeing that much of the world's bullshit. Eventually, most people would sooner swallow a bullet than deal with another pointless 24 hours of pain. Locked away in some broken body, all of one's transgressions on display with a hunched over posture, sagging skin, stench of urine, and possibly a mind that can't remember how to tie its own shoes. You weren't too far behind, still lingering in the next major group of suicides, 55 to 65. Apparently, there was a 10-year break in self-annihilation before you hit 85. Helios looks at his hands and finds himself romanticizing death again. You refer to yourself in third person more than you remember, not because you're the pretentious type, but more to remind yourself of your name. It's Helios, by the way. Your name is Helios. Third-person references are just one of the many tricks that you've learned over the last few years as the early Alzheimer's sets in. No one knows it yet, except you and your doctor. It's not as bad as it sounds, really. You pull it off with a snarky sense of humor when you forget your co-workers' names for a few minutes or go blank in the middle of your presentations at the firm. None of the kids that are running the place bother to correct you since it's your last year there and you're retiring in a week. You let out a sigh and look back at your hands as they grip the golden-wrapped chocolate bar you're not supposed to be eating in a Coke. You wanted to buy a bottle of whiskey, but after the day you had, booze isn't the most responsible thing to wash it down with. The crowded line of worker bees that you stand in at the grocery store doesn't seem to mind your appearance. Your wispy white hair is a mess. Your stubble has grown out. Your white button-up has fresh oil stains and the entire thing is off by one button. The dark brown slacks you wear, the ones that barely fit you, are torn in the left butt cheek and honestly, you don't know if people behind you can see your boxers or gray ass hair. Either way, you're glad you can't see it. The ache in your lower back is more angry than usual. Your knees and hips are throbbing after you attempted to kneel down on Arlington Heights and Lake Cook Road. You chuckle at the black oil grease caked on your fingertips. The residue smears on the golden wrapped chocolate so you wipe it clean on your white stained shirt. You were headed home when the rear tire of your 2001 Honda Accord blew out. In the middle of trying to remember how to get to the grocery store and why you were actually going to the grocery store, you must have hit a curb turning left on Arlington Heights. The rear axle was unfazed, but the tire gave in to the impact, sending your quarry limping across the intersection. By the time you found a place to pull over, the rubber was shredded beyond any semblance of repair. You sat in the driver's seat staring at your phone, debating on whether to call AAA or attempt to throw on the spare in the trunk. From what you could remember, from what Helios could remember, he had chosen to put on the spare himself because he suddenly found himself standing in the middle of the street. Mid-sized SUVs flew past him. A few honked at him, honked at you, as you made your way around the rear of the Accord. A moment of clarity dawned. This was your car, and you had a flat that you were gonna repair. That's right. Another break in time. You're hunched over struggling with a hubcap, Knees on fire from having scraped the pavement when you must have carelessly knelt on the street. The plastic hubcap bent and creaked but refused to relinquish itself to you. The day grew hotter, and in your frustration you thought about walking to the grocery store and leaving the useless vehicle on the side of the road. Who would miss it after all? My name is Helios. You remembered saying to the young man that somehow appeared at your side. You looked over his shoulder to see a 1999 Pontiac Grand Prix parked behind you. It was just as beat up as one would imagine a 99 Grand Prix would look. He gave you a smile then went to work popping the hubcap off the wheel before grabbing the spare tire waiting next to him. You looked at your trunk and it had been opened. The spare and roadside jack removed from the spare wheel well in the back. The sun in the sky had moved without your permission. Before you got back into the car, you had insisted on paying the young man for his trouble, but he only shook his head with a smile. He said to get home safe, 
that he was sorry for your loss, and Virginia sounded like a sweetheart. It was strange he knew about your wife, or who she was when she was alive. He pulled away with a wave from behind the steering wheel, his oversized green subway employee shirt drenched in sweat and oil. You let out a low hum as you remember his words. In your hands, the coke swishes back and forth as you try to remember Virginia. The memories aren't as readily accessible as they were before. You have to try a little harder to remember the specifics of the surroundings, the names of the other people, even the exact circumstances of the memory you attempt to recall tend to be a bit further away from your grasp these days. Where did you meet Virginia again? Was it in Grand Rapids or Niagara? There's a small shuffle of sound that gathers your attention as the line moves up. Virginia had been gone for more than a decade now. The small duplex seemed painfully quiet when she wasn't there to give life to its empty rooms. Time and its unwavering cruelty continued on without her, and eventually, you had to as well. Every night, sitting in the same chair watching the same shows you had enjoyed together, nearly speaking aloud to the vacant couch next to the coffee table. The holidays came and went, as usual. Halloween reminded you of the ghosts and paranormal shows she watched during the fall season. Virginia swore she had seen three ghosts growing up in her house back in Queens. Helios laughs to himself. You laugh to yourself. Christmas was the hardest during the first year. You didn't bother putting up the tree until December 23rd. You knew Virginia would have missed seeing it if she could have somehow visited you after her death. A ghost. The fourth year wasn't all too bad since the pandemic had shut down the world. You felt oddly comfortable in the midst of isolation surrounded by so much death. For once in your life, you didn't feel alone in the world. By the eighth year, you had dropped the formalities of death and would speak to her all the time when you were home. Taking a shower, brushing your teeth, waking up and getting dressed. You had taken to conversing with Virginia's absence as much as her memory. Two years back, out of the corner of your eye, you saw her walk across the hallway. The same pattern she traced between the bathroom and your bedroom. You called out her name and for a second, you heard her answer you. When you walked into the bathroom and turned on the lights, no one greeted you. Like always. You wept that night and in the back of your mind, the thought began to creep up with your lack of awareness. You missed Virginia more than ever, and life wasn't as fun as it used to be. There wasn't any family to reach out to since you never had children together. And honestly, you always wanted a daughter. The line shuffles and you snap out of your musing. The young man comes to mind as you write your posture by the magazine rack. His name was... Larry... or... Lewis, your name is Helios. What was his name? He reminded you of someone you can't remember anymore. His disposition was that of a young man out of time, not the current hell you find yourself in. He was respectful, courteous, and didn't have any apprehensions about helping you. There was a sadness in his eyes that you immediately identified, but don't remember why. Did you ask him why he was hurt? You can't remember, as usual. He looked like he had been crying, and if you weren't as old as you are, you would have missed it. In all your years of grief, you had come to know the hidden blink of lamentations behind cheerful eyes. The card reader at the cash register squawks angrily at the young woman in front of it. Her blonde hair hides most of her face as she lets out a sigh and looks at the card in her hand. The cashier doesn't bother saying a word but instead leans back and grabs her phone. Helios looks at the counter. A few plastic bags of groceries are already bagged and waiting to be taken by the girl who nervously slides her card into the little machine again. The card reader squawks. You look over your shoulder and the rest of the worker bees are staring down at their own phones. Most with earbuds at full volume in an attempt to drown out the senselessness of life itself. 
You turn back around and see the young girl fumble with the same card. She flips it over again, then slides it into the reader for a third time. The card reader squawks again. Louder, if that's even possible. She pulls the card out and holds it in between her hands, clasped together against her chest like a prayer to Bank of America. Her long eyelashes shut tight against her lack of funds, prevent her from seeing you quietly approach. Barbara, the apathetic cashier, looks up from her phone as you hand the chocolate bar and coke to her. She absentmindedly scans it and tosses the items in one of the young woman's bags before returning to her phone. The young woman looks up at you, tears down her face as you smile warmly and slide your card through the reader. The little machine chimes, happy to serve its function, and you slip your card back into your wallet, quietly sauntering off into the crowd. You would have said something to the young woman, but you were already starting to cry. You don't remember why exactly, but at the same time you had completely forgotten why you went to the grocery store in the first place. All you knew was that a young man helped you repair a flat, and a young woman needed her groceries. As you leave the store, you see Virginia smile at you from behind the crowd, and then she vanishes. Your name is Helios. Remember that. You watch the cheese melt through the plastic viewing slot of the oven. The hollow feeling in your chest has settled in more than ever. White cheese melts almost instantly and slides across sizzling bacon that soaks the honey oat bread with grease. You blink a few times to clear your head and ignore the overwhelming urge to cry. The smell is wasted on your tenured senses. Three years working in the same subway. Serving the same menu items to the same people on the same day at the same time of day, every day. All those routine hours blended into a few years that led you to the realization seeping into your consciousness as the bacon pops in the oven. You've wasted three years of your life. The catalyst for this realization came in the form of an eviction notice taped to your apartment door last night. After you got home from work, you saw it flapping in the wind as you walked up the second floor of the Barrowin apartment complex. In faded pink letters, the word eviction waved around as you pulled a notice from the door. The deadbolt lock was a different color, silver polished aluminum compared to the rusted bronze you were used to. There was no point in trying your key. It wasn't going to work. Last night, you spent most of it trying to understand what happened to your life. You didn't sleep much, as the driver's seat of a 1999 Grand Prix isn't really as comfortable as your mattress, nor is the sense of safety one finds in a Walmart parking lot, especially just south of Cicero. When the sun rose this morning, you were already on your way to work. The oven chimes. Autopilot in full effect, you watch yourself slide the sandwich tray out in one fluid motion, grabbing the sandwich with tongs, placing it on the cutting board, and immediately grabbing a handful of olives, pickles, and two slices of tomatoes. Hilda watches you with a slightly more focused gaze than usual. You shrug off her concern and finish her sandwich, just the way she likes it. Extra oil, no salt, extra pepper. You wrap the six-inch sub perfectly, creases be damned, and walk to the register where she waits in the same posture, Shoulders slightly askew, arms crossed, debit card in hand. You ring her up on the cash register, and as she takes her receipt, she eyes you for a moment. She asks, Are you alright? With a subway bag dangling in her hand. Hmm? You reply. Are you alright, Leo? You pause. It's the first time you've heard her say more than her order in three years. Am I all right? You ask yourself more than her. Yes. She nods and smiles. Is everything okay? You've never seen her smile, but it is striking. Her voice is different today. It's lighter, and it lacks the weight of her daily remorse. Um, not really, you say by accident. I can tell. She nods again. You're sadder than usual today. 
I didn't mean to offend you, hon, but you usually look a little sad back there. She glances at the line, then back to you as you look down at the floor, feeling exposed. I remember when I got evicted, she says, looking out over the cracked and overgrown shopping mall parking lot. She shakes her head. I was probably a little older than you are, and I had nothing to show for myself. She shrugs her shoulders. And I ended up sleeping in a shelter for over six months. Really? You ask. She nods. Yeah. I remember I kept promising myself every morning I woke up in that place that I was going to get myself out. Her eyes look out to the intersection. And every night I... I fell asleep angry with myself that I would failed. How'd you get out? You ask as you take a drag from your cigarette. The two of you are sitting on one of the benches just outside the valet parking area of the food court promenade. Honestly? She turns to look at you. I sold myself for money. You feel your expression involuntarily go blank. I've never told anyone that. But it's true. I was an escort for a few months. I saved up enough cash to get back on my feet, and that was that. Wow, you say. I'm, I'm sorry you had to go through that. Me too, hon. She casually takes your cigarette and inhales with tired, shut eyes. After that, I was never the same. The first night I fell asleep in my own hotel bed. You know, the hotel bed that I paid for. That wasn't a shelter bed. I felt worse than being homeless. Why? You ask. Because in all that self-hatred and determination not to let myself down, I sold the last part of myself to strangers. Sure, I wasn't homeless, but... That wasn't me anymore, either. She hands you the cigarette with French manicured nails. A rose gold bracelet encrusted with diamonds slide down her wrist. You take the cigarette and for the first time notice Hilda's remnant beauty tucked away in dark washed denim and Colhan flats. Then what happened, if, if you don't mind me asking? Her light blue eyes smile coyly at you. You mean how did I come to afford diamonds and designer clothes well not not just that but how did you find a better life it takes time Leo eventually I found a man that loved me not before I put myself through school and got started in real estate of course but we got married I had a daughter we found a house a big house and and you were happy. She looks at the intersection, then back at you. Sometimes. She takes a breath. When my daughter was younger, and my husband was still alive, yes. But things got complicated as she grew older. They always do. She looks at you, and you hand her your cigarette. She takes a drag and says... My earlier years caught up with me. How so? <sighs> I was controlling of my daughter. She takes another drag with full, pale lips. Smoke trails out of her nose, as she says. She was young and normal. She wanted to wear cute clothes and go out, and I couldn't think of anything else but being used by a man. We would fight constantly. Yeah, it was awful to her. Hmm. What did your husband say about all of it? You ask softly. He would try to reason with me, but I wouldn't listen. She takes another long drag. Then a few years ago, he was shot and killed in a carjacking. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. She nods as more smoke slips from her mouth. They shot him six times, for no reason. He gave them our car, but they shot him anyway. After that, 
my daughter and I, well, it's been over five years since we spoke. She hands you what's left of the cigarette. My point, Leo, is that despite how awful your life may feel, you have time to make it right. You were evicted last night, and now you have nowhere to go but home. If you're referring to my dad's home, I told you we don't get along. That may be true, but he's waiting to hear your voice, Leo. I can promise that. She sighs. No matter the distance or fights you've had between each other, he's waiting for you to call him right now, just to hear your voice. She looks at you as you try not to cry. Leo, every child wants to go home when they're lost. You nod and put the cigarette out beneath your shoe. Maybe. You say as you stand and look at Hilda, who is still lost in her reflection. Why did you ask if I were okay today? I've never heard you say more than your order in the entire time you've come into my work. She doesn't bother to look up at you as she smiles to herself. The way you look so sad, you reminded me of my daughter. I wish I had asked her how she felt more often. She looks at you. I guess I was just trying to make up for lost time. That sounds weird, doesn't it? She looks down at the pavement. You shake your head. Not at all. I'm glad you did. She looks up at you and you smile as you say. You should call your daughter. You can see the old man struggling with the rear hubcap of a white Honda Accord. The trees that look down on the street and rustle in the humid, unseasonably warm air as it blows through your open driver's side window remind you it's October. Precariously bent over, the old man sweat soaks through his stained white button-up shirt. His hands are shaking as he wipes at his balding head and clears the sweat from his brow. Your car comes to a stop behind the Accord and from the driver's seat, you notice a few things. The first detail is a sense of struggle going on in the old man's face. His mustache, bushy and in need of a trim, twitches back and forth as he grits his teeth in defiance of the hubcap's grip. The second detail visible through your Pontiac's windshield is how the white button-up he's wearing is off by one button. It would be funny if he were in his mid-forties, but he's older than that and looks slightly lost. You put your car in park and kill the ignition. You pause a moment and notice a third and final detail. He looks scared. It's not obvious at first, especially if you were driving by, but as he strains to stand up to greet you, you realize he doesn't know where he is. Hey, do you, uh, do you need some help? You ask as kindly as possible. <sighs> it appears... It appears that way, yes. It's odd because his eyes glance around you rather than at you, then for a moment appear to tear up before returning to normal. Do you have the keys? You ask as he makes eye contact with you for the first time. He gives you a nervous look. So I can uh, open the trunk and get the spare? Oh, of course, he says. He digs into his pocket and hands you a set of keys. A faded keychain ornament dangles from the keychain. The rubber-shaped state of Virginia. Are you, uh... Are you from Virginia? You ask as you pop the trunk. No, uh, I was born and raised here in Chicago. He replies. Then why the state of Virginia? You ask, handing him the keys. That was my wife's name, he says. The old man looks at the faded rubber stayed in his hands, then looks up at you. My name is Helios. It's nice to meet you, Helios. You say and pull the spare out of the trunk. The wind picks up and an awkward silence begins to creep in between the two of you. 
You pop off the hubcap with ease and get to work. What was she like? You asked. Who? Virginia. Oh, that's my wife's name. He says. Right, right. What was she like? She was one of the kindest people I've ever known. He smiles to himself, and the sadness returns to his eyes. She died ten years ago. Um, I'm sorry to hear that, Helios. Me too. The way he says it, the way it's phrased, seems as though he's reminding himself about these facts. You change the shredded mass of tire and slide the wheel into the trunk. The trunk closes with a loud clasp and you see him holding a hundred dollar bill in his outstretched hand. You politely decline the money and he puts the bill back into his wallet. He reminds you of your grandfather, the one with Alzheimer's, the one who lives in the assisted living center in Vernon. You tell him to get home safe and that you're sorry for his loss. He nods and says thank you before pausing with a confused look about your condolences. As he pulls away, you hope he's not alone in this life and that he lives close by. As you watch the intersection fade in your rear view mirror, you begin to wonder what you'll tell your dad when you arrive home for the first time in years. The way the sunlight falls through the vertical blinds across the breakfast nook. The shadows appear to glimmer as the breeze pushes them from side to side. Across the small table where you've spent the last five years eating alone, you watch the same shadows reach for your fingertips wrapped around your coffee mug. The little chip at the top from where John dropped it 12 years ago when he was doing dishes after one of the fights you had had scrapes across your index finger. You tap the mug and listen to the ding that comes from the rim. Nothing is warm anymore. The coffee steam wafts upwards in tendrils of white that disappear like lonely phantoms into the dim hues of the kitchen. Yet, you feel nothing across your skin. The Xanax must be kicking in. It takes longer to kick in, but when it does, that feeling of disconnectedness invades. No not invades, envelops, yeah, the disconnectedness envelops you and takes you out to sea among the rolling tides of some vacant life. A grackle lands on the wooden fence and you wonder what it must be like to fly. The grackle looks through the vertical blinds at you, tilts its head as if to wonder what it must be like to drug oneself into another plane of existence. It flies off in a muted swish of iridescent black and blues. The sun falls upon your skin, the back of your hand, lit up sunlight illuminated gold from the stars, shows the ridges, the lines, the creases, the wrinkles of your ever-present and creeping age. You take a breath and look away from your skin. Instead of looking towards the West Elm wallpaper that adorns your kitchen walls, you choose to look out into the blue shadows of the backyard. The second wave of Xanax washes into your blood. You shut your eyes without knowing it. Open them. Drift backwards through time. You hear your daughter laughing upstairs and John, still alive is asking her why she's so silly. You imagine you'd smile at this, but nothing registers on your numb face. Her small footsteps rush down the stairs, and they tap across the kitchen tile. John, still alive, comes after her and opens the pantry door like he did every morning, when he was still alive. Blink. She's 15 and slams the door. You shudder with the resonation settling into the walls. John stands up across the dinner table and lets out a sigh before walking up the stairs in that slow, distinct way he did back then, when he was still alive. 
The top of the stairs creak with his weight, and he knocks on the door, explaining to your daughter why you didn't mean what you had said. His voice is low but compassionate, and you hate him for it. You hate the way he's always been able to say exactly what she needs to hear. The door opens. He stands in the doorway, conversing with the blonde-headed mystery you gave birth to. A moment later, the two are laughing, as if sharing an inside joke, and you boil with envy and rage. Blink. John runs a hand through his hair as he looks at you from the living room while contemplating by the coffee table. He tells you that he can't do it anymore and that he's going to take you up on your offer. He admits that he hasn't been happy in years and knows you're miserable too. You don't say much to him because of the relief spilling into your soul. Your heart, it beats with a low pressure lob. The medication is erasing that high blood pressure thud one useless beat at a time. John gives you a sad nod and he is the same boyish man that you had fallen in love with years ago. The naive and ever calm, ever patient, ever understanding man that loved you with grace and profound dignity. The man, the sweet man, that welcomed you into his home, into his life, into his newfound career, and took care of you despite your true nature. Homeless, stubborn, filthy fucking escort you were. He took you in and beheld in you the woman he so desperately wanted you to become. That was John's gift back then, when he was still alive. He always saw the potential in others. Then you had a child, a daughter, and her potential took over. The fear of her falling into your disappointing ways overwhelmed you, didn't it? And that's when you found yourself turning against her. You sip your coffee absently. The sting of the heat is wasted on you. Blink. You remember the last night John was alive. He gave you that understanding nod, went for a drive, and never came back. Twelve hours later, Chicago PD was at your door, telling you the news that would paint you with shame and guilt. John's wake was short. You buried him. She hated you. She hates you. The silence that followed John's death clung heavy to the walls. It drenched your listless nights when your daughter would come home and quietly slip into her room without acknowledging you. The only way you knew she was still living in the same house was the occasional discovery of a plate or bowl in the sink. Sometimes her door would be left open, and you would catch the scent of her perfume in the air moments after she had disappeared out of the house and into the city. She did her best to avoid you, and was masterful to a fault. You spent the nights crying, sobbing on the floor of your bedroom. A year later, it was her bedroom. A year after that, it was the kitchen. Then the doctor's appointments and therapy and drugs and drugs and drugs. And now you don't cry anymore. You don't feel anymore. Because you live in this haze of a present day. You would cry if you hadn't forgotten how to do it. The guilt came later and didn't leave. When John died, it was a way to avoid the conflict of divorce. Forego the drawn-out explanations to mutual friends when they asked where John was or why you were moving out or what happened in the marriage, how your daughter would take the news. Being a widow from a senseless act of violence is much easier than a divorcee. The self-hatred, the destruction that rose up from it all was inevitable. Every time you looked in the mirror, you saw yourself as a fucking scum you believed yourself to be. John never loved you. He loved the potential in you. 
Your daughter never loved you. She only tolerated you for the sake of her father. The two of them, they were the real family. You, you were the outsider looking in from the street. Like you always were. Like you'll always be. Take another pill. The sunlight radiates its beam against your cheek, not knowing the sheer pointlessness of it all. But thanks for the effort. Blink. The grackle returns and watches you fade away. A mix of nausea and uncontrolled emotions take hold of you for the first time. It's been three days. Three days since you blacked out on the kitchen floor and stopped taking the meds. You blink away the remnants of the last bizarre, disconnected, crying outbursts in your bathroom. The empty, oversized tub cradles you as you look up through the small, horizontal slit between closed blinds. Mid-morning sunlight greets your newfound sobriety with a growing warmth upon your skin. Three days and nights of withdrawal saw you emerge on the other side of sickness. The tears of uncontrolled laughter, paranoia, sadness, horrendous joy, sadness again, all of it tore through your brain as your neurotransmitters desperately tried to remedy themselves of the shortage of drugs. You fell asleep in the empty tub a few hours ago, after crying for no discernible reason. Then, you woke with the most calm you felt in years. You look into the mirror with a newfound clarity. The lines across your face don't seem as bad as you thought they were. You lean closer to look at the wrinkles in your forehead. Your light blue eyes stare back at you. You blink and there are no flashbacks. Instead, only your reflection, not remotely as monstrous as you had remembered it to be. Another breath of air moves your heart to beat and you feel it in your chest. Your hands, your steady hands, reach down and cup the water running from the faucet. Your eyes shut, black and red hues of color take over and the water is invigorating. You open your eyes and realize you don't want to die anymore. The two of you took turns confessing to one another. Two would-be strangers swept up in a strange October afternoon outside of the Rosemont Outlet Mall. Leo was his name. A slender-framed young man, 22 years old and desperate with life. You caught him fighting tears behind the cash register at Subway and two hours later, life had changed for the both of you. His life was a mixture of unresolved abandonment and a stark portrait of potential future outcomes courtesy of his despondent father and an absent mother. You shared a cigarette with the kid on the promenade bench. Somewhere between your last few years of Xanax dependencies, a strange breakdown, three days of detox in the first half of the day, you found yourself confessing the most vulnerable parts of your past to him. He was kind and paid you the attention and care that had been missing for the last few years. He didn't judge nor did he scoff. He merely listened and offered up his naivety as a means of condolence. It was enough for you, as if you deserved anything more in this life. Leo, whose mother had left his life before he turned six years old, sat next to you this afternoon. The boy who grew up scared of everything, frightened of school, tormented by anxiety, and bullied throughout most of his life, sat next to you this afternoon. Leo, whose alcoholic father never hurt him, but never held him. 
the father that taught him nothing in life but the lessons of silence and regret. Leo, who left home at 17 and whose father started calling him every day two years ago after he sobered up, sat next to you today and confessed he was painfully alone and scared, and you admitted the same to him and smoked his cigarettes. You take a drag from the first cigarette of the new pack you bought on your way home and look out over your backyard as the crickets chirp. The freshly cut grass from the Stevens yard down the street merges with the aroma of Lake Michigan blowing in from the north. The stars above, barely visible beyond the light of the suburbs, twinkle and hang endless in ways that you can't recall ever seeing before. And in this vast array of clarity, the words of Leo continue to replay in your mind. You should call your daughter. You look at your phone. It's two in the morning. You have Melinda's number from her W-2 that was sent to you by accident last year. That's how you learned she worked at the CTA station near East Rogers Park. You saved the number into your phone, then popped a pill to take the edge off the anxiety you experienced imagining what you'd say if you ever called her. The tight-lipped mother you were, lost to bouts of self-hatred, doubt, and fear, would toil endless with ways of fucking up the one shot you had in convincing your daughter you weren't a waste of her time. Now, with four days of sobriety behind you, the world felt less ominous and merely open. The truth you had seen in the mirror this morning. A woman afraid of loving anyone, especially herself. In the solitude of morning sunlight and a spotless vanity mirror, you realized you deserved the compassion, love, and kindness afforded to you by your family, and most importantly, yourself. So you promised to be kind to yourself and to anyone who needed to confess their pain. It's how you met Leo. You check your phone again. It's 2.02 a.m. You tap Melinda's name without any fear, only love. It rings and rings and rings. And right before you hang up, she answers. October Suicide was written and performed by Gabriel N. Elizondo. Music and effects provided by Epidemic Sound. Narratives with Gabriel N. Elizondo is a Crown and Coil production. All written content and performances are exclusive properties of Crown and Coil Productions. For additional content, a full list of featured songs in this episode, and to connect, please visit www.gabrielnelizondo.com or click the link in the show notes. If you liked what you heard, please leave a rating and review. It really does help. This is going to be the final episode of the season. I want to thank all of you guys who've kept me company on this journey. 36 episodes in and I enjoyed every single second making it, producing it, performing on it occasionally. <laughs> if these stories have touched your hearts and souls, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. I want to express my deep gratitude to everyone who has reached out already and tuned in. Thank you all so much. For now, I'm going to take some time off and edit my second book. Maybe get some more sleep. I'll see you guys next year. And thank you 
for being a part of our story. 